0: it's been dragging you down and get up in the air just pretend that you can fly
1: you'll never know if you
2: can till you try hi and welcome to cannabis helps dementia i'm chella
1: i'm dave and right up front we'd like to say that we're not doctors or medical professionals and nothing you hear in this podcast should be considered medical advice Right. Yeah, We're not experts, but throughout this podcast series, you'll hear from doctors, nurses, research scientists, administrators, other caregivers, and people living with dementia about how cannabis helps.
2: Like it did for our family. That's right. After my mom was diagnosed with dementia, we were thrust into family caregiving and became fierce advocates for people living with dementia.
1: Including their access to cannabis medicine. Dr. Sherry Fai is an emergency medical physician who transitioned into cannabis-based medicine. In 2017, after adult use marijuana laws had passed in California, Dr. Yafai opened her private cannabis clinic, the Relief Institute, where she sees patients referred by physicians for cannabis education and treatment. Roughly 75% of her patients are over the age of 50 and prefer to use non-smokable cannabis products.
2: Dr. Yafai is the co-vice president of the Society of Cannabis Clinicians the director of research and development at High Sobriety, a member of the UCLA Cannabis Initiative, and speaker for UCSD Center for Medical Cannabis Research. In 2018, she was accepted as an adjunct professor at John Wayne Cancer Institute, working with cannabis and cancer research.
1: Dr. UFI works to educate physicians, clinicians, and other healthcare care providers on the most up-to-date clinical data and research in the field of cannabis.
2: And we are so excited to be talking with Dr. Yafai about how cannabis helps dementia. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you for having me. This is such a great uh, adventure to go on with you both. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. So we all live in LA and it's a very dynamic time to be sure. The thing is that no matter what else is happening in the world, dementia doesn't care. It marches on and people in relationship with dementia don't usually have the luxury of choosing what to focus on. Uh, Dr. Yafai, can we talk about how cannabis helps ease anxiety in people living with dementia? Maybe tell us about some of the mechanisms by which cannabis helps to relieve anxiety.
0: Sure, so what we're seeing generally in the clinic today is a, a variety of different things. So the question becomes which chemical is helping ease anxiety and for each individual we've seen that it's a little bit different. Hmm. There are some studies and research out there that looks at CBD very specifically as the, the major chemical component as quieting anxiety. There are some studies that are looking at THC as the major component to quieting anxiety. Hmm. And what we see what we is, is that everybody responds to this a little bit differently. So part of that is also what, you know, what we're allowed to do research on and this is a really challenging time for a lot of scientists and physicians right now because we keep wanting to go to the scientific literature to say okay you know let's prescribe or let's recommend you know chemical a or chemical b or a combination and we're really stuck because the federal government has created this really awkward place where we can't do great research or gather great data because of the rules and regulations there. So one of the studies that we're looking to do right now, and I think I mentioned this to Chella before, is, is looking at anxiety in patients with Parkinson's disease. And Parkinson's disease and dementia actually tend to be a little bit intertwined because we know that Parkinson's patients have a higher tendency or rate of dementia than the average individual. We also know that Parkinson's patients have a higher tendency towards anxiety, and that sometimes anxiety can pre- can come up about five to ten years before your Parkinson's diagnosis. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, you know, in your 40s and 50s, you're now dealing with a lot of anxiety issues that you Usually in your 40s and 50s, it's not the time where people get diagnosed with new anxiety. Hmm. So now we're, we're, we're taking a look and moving forward, hopefully, with a study looking at CBD very specifically as a, a means to control anxiety, specifically again in Parkinson's patients or Parkinson's related anxiety. Hmm. So it's really nice in dementia to be able to use something during the daytime where we can look and see if we can help patients with dementia. Um, control this mild anxiety that they all kind of tend to exhibit, you know, because sometimes they look around themselves and they don't know where they are, they don't know who they are, they don't know where they're, who they're with, and that can be anxiety-provoking in anyone.
2: Sure, yeah. Um, we've recently heard that CBD in low doses can be stimulating in some people. What do you know about that? Absolutely. Um, I refer to CBD
0: as like having a cup of decaf coffee. That's my usual analogy because I do find it to be awakening um, and that it mm-hmm. tends to be, you know, I think of, you know, if, if we think of sativa and indica, those kind of ideas of what cannabis makes you feel like, mm-hmm. sativa tends to be a lower THC content and maybe some more CBD in it. Hmm. Um, whereas indica tends to be, you know, a heavier THC content with some other terpenes, linaloo, limonene, those other things that tend to be more calming sedatives. Mm-hmm. But yes, CBD absolutely can be awakening, even if you think of it as calming your pain that makes you feel lethargic and it makes you feel like you can't get up and move. We have patients with arthritis who are like, I, I, I don't want to get up and walk because my joints hurt by the end of the day, so it just makes me feel a little bit more tired. But when they use CBD-based products, we find they can get up, they can move more and they feel energized just by means of being able to do those things.
1: Mm-hmm. It's, yeah and there's and there seems to be a lot in the press right now about arthritis and possibility of using CBD. and that sounds like that really might be, although it, I suppose it has the anti-inflammatory process you know properties of it, but that sort of disassociative stimulating effect that gets you through the pain is maybe part of it too, right?
0: Correct. So there's a really great um, mouse model that uh, took a look at uh, arthritic mice. And what they did was they took a look at, I believe, four parts, if I remember correctly. One was the the size of the joint. So I'm showing you like, like the circle diameter of the joint. And then there was also the amount of pain that the mice were in by means of movement. And, um, and then afterwards, they unfortunately always sacrificed these mice. And then they take a look at the actual... Uh, joints and the inflammatory markers in the joint. And uh, on all of those parameters, they use topical CBD actually in mice. Mm-hmm. And in those mice, they found a great reduction in all three of those parameters. So they could say with confidence, at least on preclinical models, that CBD is very helpful in um, mice models of arthritis. And uh, with my patients as well, things like. Things like a topical CBD combined with an oral CBD does really well for a lot of arthritic patients. And mm. I like to consider it as sandwiching the pain so you can get around it both from your blood and then uh, from the top where you get really into the joint where there's not a lot of great blood flow sometimes, especially with arthritic patients. So mm.
2: you can
0: try and get it to, to your joints from both, both directions.
2: Awesome. What sort of dose is an average dose, is there an average dose for CBD orally for arthritis?
0: Chella, that's a great question. So this is a big topic of discussion. And actually, I'm gonna take it back to a NIDA-based discussion. So the National Institute of Drug Abuse recently put out an article and said, I believe it was Laura Volcal, if I'm not mistaken. She, she put out an article and said, hey, do we need a standardized dose for THC, CBD? Do we need to have these kind of standardizations and dosages? And absolutely we do. Just like we have standardized doses for Tylenol for pediatrics, you know, acetaminophen for adults, and, and, and any sort of NSAIDs for adults and children. And we need to really draw a line and say, hey, you know, for pediatrics, we really need to go weight-based dosing. Like we do almost all other medications, mm-hmm. whereas for adults, we can really have a little bit more of a window um, for, but we need to have discussions about weight versus gender. You know, do we know um, Ziva Cooper has done a lot of really good research, and I believe she's undergoing another research, um, uh, grant-based approved research on gender uh, differences. So, mm-hmm. women absorb this differently than men do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we absorb it differently with and without food. So, with food, you absorb more of it. Without food, and a lot of i, I a lot of people on the internet and a lot of um, the general public who are cannabis aficionados, they all say the same thing. You know, oh, it definitely hits me after I eat. You know, X, Y, or Z.
1: Like the mango, the mango myth. Right.
0: (laughs) A lot of these myths are based, you know, loosely on something, right? Some kind of truth. And so, you know, there's a reason why it's mixed into chocolate, right? Uh It's a nice fatty-based oil, a nice fatty-based product, and we absorb it better with fatty-based foods. So that's a really great reason to use chocolate. As, as your base, right? It, you know, there's a reason why it's not mixed into Quaker oats, right? It's because it's not going to get absorbed. And, and trust me, people have been trying this out, you know, left and right in every which way possible, because the best part about cannabis is, is the, the fact that we have millions of people who have been putting in their own creative juices in this and have really been bringing up the game without us even trying, right? Without even having scientists involved for so many decades and centuries, mm-hmm. we've really been able to get to this point where, hey, there's a reason why, you know, we can say actually that CBD, if, you, if you've kind of overdosed or taken too much THC, maybe you should try having a little bit of CBD tincture on top and it'll dampen the effects of the THC. I mean, I first read that idea on some blog post somewhere, and in fact, you see it play out in medicine.
1: Right? Really, so that is it is some that's that's a measurable effect that you can see in people. It will bring counteract that uh, paranoia or that overstimulation of uh, the, the from the THC.
0: Absolutely, and it works really nicely in all these different ratio meds where mm. you know, if you use 20-part CBD to one-part THC, you're not going to feel the THC, right? Right. If you use a four-to-one ratio, four-part CBD to one-part THC, you're not going to feel the THC in it, and it's because it has this dampening effect on the THC. Now, that being said, if you've taken 20 milligrams of THC and you're a novice user, and you want to try putting some CBD in you, you probably aren't going to be able to get enough CBD in you to, to counter those effects. And you probably will need a little more help than average bear. Um, which in that case, I would suggest going to the emergency department and getting pharmaceutical-based medications to quiet that down.
1: If that's the if that's what you need, yeah. Well, well, you know, that certainly seems to be the what you're seeing as far as an increase in emergency room visits in the legalized states. Are these new people who are trying a little bit too much than they should, haven't gotten the right advice, and they end up with a little bit too much uh, overstimulation and end up in the emergency room? Always go home uh, eventually, uh, you know, safe and alive. But uh, that can be—it certainly can be disconcerting if you're if you're not used to it or not aware that it's coming—and <laughs> blows many people out of the water. And it turns out, looks like Brownie Mary might have been right all along with a little bit of chocolate brownie to get your medicine in uh, more most effectively, right?
0: Right, that's exactly right. So, so the key here is a little goes a long
1: way. Well, that's actually what I wanted to ask you about. We uh, we recently spoke to uh, Eloise Thiessen, nurse practitioner, and she has been working with a number of dementia patients. And we'd like to get a, maybe an idea of some of your, uh, any, anybody specifically um, um, in your case practice. And they've been using, she's been using extremely low doses to great effect as far as THC and even C- and even CBD. Uh, but THC at super low doses is, she is finding very beneficial. Can you talk about maybe one or two of, of your older patients who might be suffering from dementia and how you find their dosing and what's most effective for you and them?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking about one particular dementia patient. Um, he was an 80 year old gentleman or is an 80 year old gentleman who uh, had had recent hip surgery. After he had broken his hip, and this is really common, we see dementia get exacerbated or worsened after surgical procedures, and the anesthesia kind of leaves your mind worse for the wear afterwards. And so what happened, he came back home from surgery and was up up and walking, but became hyper aggressive, um, became very difficult, was combative and even a little bit physical with his daughter. And so it was really difficult because everyone wanted to help and it was hard to help. And it turned off his daughters from wanting to come over and it turned off, you know, and so it becomes more isolating. Um, and they tried to kind of do it on their own with cannabis and they had a really difficult time, so they came and sought some help. And what we found was very quickly, you could use a, about, you know, when we're talking about dosages, I find that about 20 to 30 milligrams is going to be about a standard adult size dosing to start. Um, for the daytime usage but that's something really that you want to be conscientious of other medications that are involved um, what else is going on in their lives etc and that's where the good history and physical exam comes in and then so we adjusted to start him on some cbd during the daytime to just give his mind a little bit of calm and peace and then switched over to giving him a little bit of thc at nighttime and a little bit is really you're talking about half a milligram of thc to two to three milligrams of thc
1: yeah that's the dosing that uh nurse Thiessen was talking about that was really kind of remarkable
0: yeah right, exactly so so um when nida or national institute of drug uh, administration when they're talking about you know standardizing standardizing thc dosage to five milligrams of thc we have to be able to say hey that may be, for a 20-year-old, a standard recreational dose to get them to hallucinate, get them to feel good, get them drunk, right, in essence, because that's what they're looking for.
1: Right, some type of intoxicating effect.
0: Right, because that, that's what a 25-year-old, let's keep it within legal limits, a 25-year-old is looking for. But when you're talking about an 80-year-old with dementia, you do not want them to hallucinate. You do not want them to be unstable on their feet or feel wobbly or feel drunk because they will fall and injure themselves. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we really have to create this divide between what are we talking about medically and what are we talking about recreationally. And we need to create an understanding that the two are not the same.
1: Certainly I do. It has to do with probably intent and goals, essentially, um, you know, and, and it's just I, I find it fascinating that, you know, you if, if compare they love to compare cannabis with uh, with alcohol and, oh it should be regulated like alcohol but you know nowhere <laughs> in the world the, the, I guess back in the day people were like oh alcohol is good for you you know use it for this uh, but it's they like and they still are <laughs> but here we are you know if you use this tiny amount of dose it's medicinal value and but but if you want to have a good time you just you know add experience. this much to it ex- this experience you get this and they're both beneficial to some degree uh, whether it's relieving anxiety or uh, you know you getting that euphoria that uh, enjoy you know it lifts your life or gets you to a point where you're no longer agitated and you can sleep and you can, uh, and, uh, and, and we also got uh, that information that, yeah, you don't necessarily want all dementia patients on a, on a high dose of THC, uh, especially in, at certain points of the dementia uh, where they're already being challenged by stuff going on in the brain that's not necessarily uh, normal <laughs> that they can understand
0: them hallucinating because it may make them feel even more agitated and even more aggressive. And so going back to this patient of mine, what well, the best the best outcome of this was that we got him to a place where he was feeling good, not being physically aggressive with his daughters, and they could rekindle their relationship and really allow for him to have a more of a normal interaction with his his intimate family. It was was such a blessing. And then at the same time, we could limit the amount of um, psychoactive medications like Haldol, like Ativan, like Benadryl, where these things are, you know, they would knock him out for hours on end. And the family didn't love that either. I mean, nobody does, right? You um, You don't want mom or dad to be gorked. You want them to be at their best.
1: And falls too. Falls are part of that as well. Over.
2: I'm That's sorry. Exactly. Could you tell us again what dosing this particular patient was using? Sure. So he was on
0: roughly 30 milligrams of CBD about three times a day and mm-hmm. about one milligram of THC at time. One
2: so milligram. Was, That's amazing. Yeah. So it was, a,
0: it was just, he just needed kind of a touch to help him fall asleep and just not get agitated. Yeah. So I mean, and, and and that's the key is, is figuring out, you know, I always say a little, the whole idea of a little is um, start slow and start low and go slow, or the other idea is a little is good, a lot is better, is only for recreational users. That that idea that the cannabis industry has been propagating is really just for, can, uh, for recreational users. Because... Otherwise, we really don't want patients on a lot because of exactly the things we've mentioned, falls, hallucinations. Definitely not our patients. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, you know, the other options too are there's these nice ratio mixes, right? So we have some dementia patients who are in hospice um, or are dealing with end-of-life issues. And then it becomes another question or another layer. You know, do we want them using ambient every night? Do we want them... Um, knocked out stone cold so that they so that they can't interact with their family members or you know the the caregivers who are helping them out a lot of times they don't like them being patients to be uh, gorked or drooling Mm -hmm. or sedated all day because then you do develop some uh, nighttime issues about them not being able to sleep at night so we want our 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 family members, our patients. We want everybody to be awake during the day, interactive, moving. We want them exercising. We want them engaging with other people to enhance all those other endorphins, right? All those other things that give us happiness and bring to life good things. Yeah. Um, and then at night, to be able to get good restful sleep. Mm-hmm. Now, you, nighttime THC is, is another hotly debated no button. People always say, oh, well, you can use CBD for sleep. Um, And I know there's a lot of conflicting research out there. And there's a lot of conflicting discussions amongst us as cannabis providers Mm -hmm. as to what's the best way to do this. And I think that is still going to be something that we're going to continue to need really good scientific evaluations because uh, there's a lot of individual um, discussions going on and a lot of what's the right word here? A lot of manufacturing um, Mm. of data to say my product is better for this. So that you know, and we don't want that to cloud the issue, whereas that wasn't necessarily clouding the issue beforehand because people were just using flour from the earth. Now we have a lot of product lines.
1: We have isolates. We have uh, my isolates better than your isolate. Mine's nano. Yours is not. Uh, All this fancy technology that's going to save us.
0: Mind this whole spectrum. Right. Is, right.
1: Hemp, not hemp. Um, and then uh, and then you've got um, what one of the trends that I um, kind of see, am seeing is um, that, um, the, you know, to use CBD alone, like look it up at dialects. you have to use it in such high doses to make it effective that then it becomes, starts to become that toxic medicine that it might create problems. That's
0: right. And so it's, it's all, you know, and... We talk about this all in isolation, but what I find is, is that when you hit, you know, I'll give you 40, 50, 60, you're probably taking one, two, three, four, five medications on your, you know, your individual genetics and predisposition and, and everything else that goes along with it. And, and depending on that, you know, what, how is that going to interplay with cannabis? I find that we don't talk about that enough. We, we only talk about this in isolation. But, hey, maybe you have, you know, my dementia patients are never on nothing. They're on at least a blood pressure medication.
2: What was uh, your patient that you were talking about earlier on, the one who had the hip replacement? Right. So he was
0: on blood pressure medication. He was on some Haldol, and that was (laughs) one of the medications we wanted to reduce because it it wasn't beneficial time. and he was he was throwing away his pills so he wouldn't take his pills that he needed Um, he did he was in pain as well so he had some narcotic pain medication that he was refusing to take as well and but he wasn't able to move because he was still in pain so it's being able to adjust some of these medications so no you don't have to take your narcotic if you're in pain you can use this in in place and we can supplement this but at the same time not everyone's Telling their patients this because they're not all mindful of cannabis being on board. Yeah. Right. So of the things that we need to really educate our practitioners on and our physicians and our medical providers who are writing regular prescriptions is, hey, listen to your patients. If they're planning on returning to use cannabis, this is important and you want to reduce the amount of narcotics that you're prescribing for them because... Um, I'm going to mention Ziva Cooper again. She's done some really great research. Ziva Cooper did a great article on showing that you could use 50% of of a narcotic plus THC and have a synergistic effect on pain.
2: Awesome.
1: That's, you know, every every doctor should be on board that. And I know the pharmaceutical industry is not going to be on board it. And that's probably because they're getting, there's a lot of incentive there with doctors. To not look at those other options and cutting down on pharma, that is so huge. Go ahead.
0: Why? I'm going to step in for just a moment. So it's not about incentives for doctors. It's just lack of knowledge. Right. Why is it that
2: there's a lack of knowledge? Why are they teaching this in school?
0: Because we're not teaching this in medical school. We're not teaching because it's a schedule one drug. I mean, and, and let's, let's go back to what's going on in the outside world today, not to date what's, what, when we're recording this, but we are actively having you know, protests, riots, and um, so. the, the Black Lives Matter movement, which is you know, near and dear to my heart. And one of the reasons it's near and dear to my heart is because of the fact that the cannabis movement came out of this. And and let me backtrack and explain all of this. So, in the early 1900s, the reason why cannabis or marijuana was prohibited was directly related to African Americans and Hispanics, specifically Mexicans. Okay, so let's go back and talk about why this all happened. In the early 1900s, late 1901, we were using cannabis in pharmaceutical medications. Eli, I think Eli Lee was using At,
1: at its own farm.
0: And it's right, and their own arm, and it was actively being put in, you know, sleep medications, cough syrup, you know, everything, and then some. And then around the 1920s, we now have Mexican immigrants. We have a lot of movement in Black America. And what happens is that we start labeling cannabis as marijuana which is the term that Mexican immigrants use for cannabis and what we start seeing is, is all this propaganda about how it makes Mexicans crazy it makes African-american males violent and prone to raping white women this mm-hmm. is where all of this centers around uh-huh. and we created this sense of and this this really horrible idea that African- American males are, Violent, aggressive, and rape. And rapey. I don't know a better word for that. Uh-huh. Um, and that Mexicans are crazy. And the, one of the reasons why is because of cannabis. Right. And so all of a sudden, we see the Marijuana Prohibition Act coming into play in the 1920s. And all of this stems from complete and utter racism. And it has come through even till today where we're seeing these things open up and we're seeing recreational medical laws open up in all these different states. We now have 11 states that are recreationally legal to use cannabis. And we have 33 states that have um, both medical, uh, some type of medical laws for cannabis. Right. What is still going on today, and there's this great UCLA research on this, is that African Americans are still Mm 3.6 times more likely to get arrested and put in jail for marijuana, possession of marijuana. And this plays into, you know, Black Lives Matter, because why are we imprisoning people? You know, we can imprison white Americans, we can imprison anyone, Right. Or this exact same thing, but we're not seeing it. We're seeing it disproportionately done towards our Black American um, companions, our Black American um, citizens, and this is not okay. This is something that has has propagated the idea of, oh, you know, I, I and I disheartened to report this, but, you know, one of the things I hear is, oh, George Floyd died because he was intoxicated. Oh. And, you know, it, it, we see plenty of people, you know, I work in the ER I see people come in drunk, intoxicated, high. You, you name it, I've seen it. Night and day, we take care of those people because we understand that this is, number one, an illness, right? This is, number two, it can be accidental. And number three, it's not hurtful to other people, right? It's hurtful to oneself. It's not hurtful to somebody else.
1: Yeah, you ever and seen after Philly after, after, the, after they win a big game? Uh, there's a lot of drunk people angry white people are happy white people out in the streets causing mayhem. So, (laughs) and just, and a couple of points on what you, what you mentioned is, uh, and you know, tying it to what's going on this week, uh, you know, public consumption of cannabis, although it may be legal in 11 States, public consumption is illegal. So if you're at these marches, if you're at these things, someone brought up, Oh, well, they're going to use that excuse. If you're smoking weed, they're going to use that excuse to, uh, to, to 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 you know detain you or otherwise use their police powers. And also, Alex Berenson, are one of our favorite prohibitionists. Currently, it was directly correlating cannabis use to what's going on in the streets right now, uh, right. which is you know complete nonsense and a continuation of how how we got to where we're at today. Um, so you have both points uh, taken uh, to to see where we're at. and policing in general was created to control black you know, blacks, you know, slaves that are based or non-slaves, you know, to con- control the back, escape slaves and the black population. So we have a history of where policing came from expanded in the drug war. You And you hadn't even gotten to the drug war in yeah, the seventies.
0: Let, Let go. Yeah. I and mean, there's, there, there's so much that we, we could talk about and how this is all interlaid into one another mm-hmm. and how unfortunate it is. And, uh, you know, I, um, I'm so torn with everything that's going on about how to how to help and how we can all be a part of this. But I think the most important thing we can do is, is acknowledge, you know, where this all came from and, and how it's changed, you know, the perception of cannabis, how it changed the perception of marijuana and you know, whose backs we're stepping on to get to where we are today. You know, we we've stepped on people's backs to get here in the cannabis industry. And it's important to acknowledge that. Absolutely. Um, You know, when I first started in all of this back in 2017, uh, right after, you mentioned right after legalization here in California, I remember going to a big cannabis conference in downtown LA and there were about a thousand people, uh, almost all white American, great people, wonderful people, but there was probably about three to five Black men. Uh, there was one black gentleman that was uh, a very famous person that was encouraging use of a brand, and then there was about four or five others. Now, I was leaving this conference, and I took an Uber back home, and in the Uber ride, the, we started chatting, and he, um, it was a black gentleman who was the, the driver, and he was like, what were you doing? And I was like, oh, well, interestingly enough, I was at a cannabis conference, and he said, oh, oh, you got to be careful. You know, they'll, they'll put a black man in prison. I have, uh, Half my relatives have been put in prison for that stuff. So I stay as far away from it as possible. And you will never, ever hear that discussion in in white America. You will never hear that kind of fear in white America about using pot, right? There, there's, there's no fear about smoking pot. There's no fear about, oh, my cousin was put in jail because he smoked pot and the police caught him. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can tell you how many college friends I had who were smoking pot who were smoking pot in high school and there was zero fear that they would be imprisoned for. It. Zero. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, a gentleman on the streets, you know, just a regular old conversation and you could it was palpable how his fear was around us, even though it could be beneficial to his, you know, potential future. Yes. Yeah. As a potential medication.
2: And exactly. I was gonna say health for his health. Yes. Um Black and brown people and women are disproportionately impacted by dementia. And if we could get the um, propaganda broken down, the stigma broken down around cannabis, we might be able to get them more help. Right, and I think it takes
0: things like this podcast to, to shine a light on where it can be useful. And where we can actually reduce other medications that are harmful to patients, right? We t- we you know for a, a lot of years we've been talking about the opioid epidemic and, and the solution or a cure for the opioid epidemic, and this is staring
2: us in the face.
1: Oh yeah, it's it's so much. There's so much science is coming through about that. And every state has We're not uh,
2: fast enough.
1: I know. I know. It's just, know, but just, just, well, it's not really science. It's just the statistics of the numbers of of how the opioid prescriptions are dropping in the states where it's legal and med- medically or recreationally. It's just, it's it is staring us right in the face, and, and it's just and our, criminal.
0: Our elderly population are disproportionately at risk because they tend to have more issues that require narcotics. We've, um, we've all had to implement in our hospitals, you know, safety and precautions around using narcotics for pain because we've seen overdoses happen, even in the hospitals, even when mm-hmm. we're being safe, because this is inherently not a safe medication, and yet we use it like it is. So, uh, you know, shining a light on these things again, you know, New England Journal of Medicine and uh, germ, uh, JAMA, um, these are two big scientific journals. We, I, I personally have submitted an article uh, of a clinical case presentation where we were able to take a patient off of 180 milligrams of morph- morphine milligram equivalent, it's okay. so a lot of painkillers. That's a lot. 60s, and They were all prescriptive medications, and using non-inhaled cannabis to take him off all in three months. Now, the, and then what ends up happening, so here's kind of the, the catch-22 of it all. The vicious cycle is that I, can't, I submitted this highly scientific, you know, mm-hmm. through a medical doctor's office article to these two reputable sources. And both of them dismiss the article summarily based off the title, okay? And the idea that we can dismiss this, and then you know what ends up happening is, is when I talk to my colleagues, my physician colleagues, about using cannabis as an alternative for pain management, they, they all say the same thing, well, where's the science? Where's the data? Where's the literature? And I, and then it's, you know, well, there is no data in science and literature because they won't allow us to publish it. Yeah. So. You know, and then and then you go one step further, and you say, well, on a national level, they won't allow for you know more research because there's no individual case presentations, and there's no clinical case studies um, presented in any of the literature. And you say, well, that's because the individual cases are not being allowed to be reported. So how is it that we're going to change? And at some point, someone has to say, hey. There's got to be a change here. And, you know, I'm, I'm really thrilled to say that UC San Diego has been making these changes one article at a time. UCLA is, is starting to make those changes and making those waves. NYU, with Dr. Yasmin Herb, is starting to make those changes, um, looking at CBD for treatment for heroin withdrawal. So we're starting to see some of this data and literature. In Germany, there's um, actually some great research coming out about mice models and Alzheimer's disease and maybe preventatively mm-hmm. using cannabis and THC very specifically for dementia treatment. So awesome. dementia and preventing it from even coming along to the same degree. And the most interesting part about that data is, is, hey, you don't have to get these mice high mm-hmm. all day, every day. Mm-hmm. You can just use small dosages, number one. Number two- Like a vitamin. Right.
1: <laughs> or the other idea is is
0: hey, maybe we need to talk about brains being different as you age. Maybe the young brain is different from the middle-aged brain, which is different from the elderly brain. So maybe we need to start talking about our brain doesn't stay static after 21. To a hundred, right? And I mean, like nothing else in our bodies. Do my boobs sure don't. So, <laughs> for example.
1: On a side note,
0: <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> everything that, changes. That our bodies, you know, stay the same from the age of zero to twenty, or are growing between zero and twenty-one, and then after twenty-one, we stay stagnant or static. <laughs> is is false. So
1: and your that. brain is all is yeah, Right, as soon as you're like twenty, your brain is already starting to shrink.
0: And so you're, you're, you're getting this idea of like, you know, maybe we need to take a second look at the second phase of life, right? Maybe our, our, we have phases to life and our bodies and our organs and mm-hmm. our different structures aren't just, you know, one shot fits all. Mm-hmm. And so maybe we need to take one consideration for up until 21. We need to take a different consideration of maybe let's throw out a number, maybe after 45, maybe that, I don't know. For me, it was 42, just saying. Right, right. And maybe we just need to take, start taking a second look at these things. And yeah. maybe we need to start throwing ideas out there because we can't progress unless we have ideas that will be heard. And yeah. these ideas need to start percolating and we need to start having discussions yeah. and we need to start getting these ideas to the right people. The right people need to hear them. Yeah. And we're, we're starting to get a little bit of that and we're starting to hear some responses but it's not there.
1: Well, you know, the, the, the one of the powers that be have the ears of the prohibitionists and the um, and the pharmaceutical companies, as opposed to the really knowledgeable clinicians and folks that are actually trying to create educational programs for clinicians and, you know, certified programs so they can actually get, you know, get the knowledge that they need and spread it out to the people who need it. So, yeah, we've got this wall of information, you know, just recently this week, they were talking about how they, you know, under the, the Trump administration has been secretly working a ways to make make sure prohibition stays stays in there you know so they've got they we don't have their ear we need to get in there we need to get somebody in there to actually give them some uh, some real information and you know, and ironically personal this
2: personal experience
1: and personal experiences okay. yes exactly you know kim kardashian needs to be making some phone calls you know about uh,
2: what you're talking
1: Right. It's exactly. Why not? You know, you could just, I could just see Trump coming out and saying, "Look, CBD cures the COVID." I don't know if that's going to be a good thing or a bad thing uh, for CBD. But, uh, you know, I could see him saying that. But yeah, I think we need to get more knowledgeable and real clinicians that are actually using this. I mean, CanMed last year was great because, well, it wasn't, I mean, it was, it was a lot of research, talking a lot about mice, which is wonderful, but there was very little clinical uh, presentations. And this year, it looks like we're going to see some clinical presentations on dementia, which is super exciting. Um, so, I think really the, the practical use of it on the ground with doctors like you and, and institutions, please.
2: Um, the change you're talking about is descheduling or at least rescheduling. Well,
0: and I'll go one step further because heroin is a schedule one drug. And we've got plenty of research on it. It's right. Not, right, It's not, I, 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 I hear you. I'm not dismissing that at all. Yeah. I totally agree that we need to deschedule it. But even in the States where it's, it's recreationally legal, we still don't have really good, you know, powers that be. So, Here in the state of California, the Bureau of Cannabis Control has got nothing to do with medical use. Literally nothing to do with medical use. On a committee of 22 people, right, on their consulting committee, they've got two doctors, okay? Okay. Both of whom have, like, I, I venture to say how much clinical experience they have. Mm. Okay? Um, so we need to start even here, right? Even here in California where we think we're super progressive. And we've got no medical protections in place yeah. here in California no. for patients. So patients are still paying 25 to 30% taxes on their medication, where they pay zero taxes on a pharmaceutical prescription
2: medication. It's they been medically have, legal since 1996, yet our right. state schools don't teach about it.
0: And, and so it's like, uh, it's all of these layers. We have, you know, you have to go to the, the public health facility to get a second recommendation, basically, from the public health department in order to get a decrease in taxes. What other medication do I make patients jump through so many hoops? After I prescribe Viagra, do I then make them go to the public health office and have them file with the state that they are using Viagra?
1: That would be funny. <laughs> that would be funny. That would be good. That would be interesting.
0: Can you imagine the outrage of Viagra? I mean, which is a 100% purely recreational. For <laughs> purely. Purposes. I mean, it is for no other reason, right?
2: So
1: wow. You, I mean, if we
2: True. can...
0: These things to the right the right analogies, right? We don't and we don't have people even in the state of California appropriately addressing this. The medical board of California, as wonderful as they are, and I really think Kim Kirchmeyer has done an amazing job in terms of, you know, allowing for a lot of cannabis flexibility, I think there's a lot of room to grow. And I think somebody has to take ownership between these two groups, between the Bureau of Cannabis Control and between the Medical Board of California, somebody has to take ownership for cannabis regulations in the medical field. And nobody has.
1: Well, they've, you know... 64 destroyed medical, and I'll turn it over to Chela. 64 destroyed medical, uh, the legalization that Dennis Perrone did in California, destroyed it, and now what we have is a, in order to get a card, it's so difficult to go and get a card, it's costly, I mean, the number of medical, qualified medical cannabis patients is like 6,000 in California or some absurdly low number that actually have a card that saves you that, uh, that taxes. So, yes, absolutely. We need to fix medical in California.
2: What I'm afraid some medical patients might be doing to save on taxes might be going to unregulated places
1: which is all the BCC is obsessed with right now they're hiring they're hiring enforcement people to bust all these black markets that the medical people are going to because they don't want to pay the taxes
2: traditional market
1: traditional market yes
2: so, so-
0: you know, this is another important thing is that medical patients, this doesn't get covered by insurance, right? right. So they're paying now and they get expensive. So for somebody who's using, let's say 30 milligrams of CBD three times a day, mm. that's what, uh 30, that's 90 milligrams of CBD a day in a typical 1000 milligram bottle, right? You're going through that in roughly 10 to 12 days. Mm. That's, and that's costs anywhere from 75 to $100. So you're talking about medication that now they're going to use $300 worth of medication in a month. Right. Most people, that's, that breaks their pocket. I mean, listen, right. if right. I was going to use a medication, $300 a month, I think twice about it. You know, I would go with the the Ativan pill. That's $2 uh, with my copay, you right. know, I I can, I'd go with the Norco. It's five dollars with the co- copay for pain. Right. Know, why would you necessarily go use something else that costs so much? And so it's a really, it's a really challenging for my medical patients and it's important that this is brought to the forefront of the discussion, right? We don't just want to deschedule or do, you know, we want to do it the right way. We want to have our medical professionals at the front lines of this and talking about how it's beneficial to their patients, but also how they are overall healthier and how this is difficult to maintain because of the cost. And so this Mm -hmm. is something that all
2: goes hand in hand. And then again, also disproportionately impacts black and brown people. Yes. With less access to cannabis.
1: Yeah. And poverty. Yeah. If you can't afford it, you know, it's uh, automatically is, uh, it's uh, limiting who, who can use it.
2: Yes. absolutely. Um, Dr. Sherry, you're such a wealth of information. I really appreciate you coming and joining with us today. I hope to have you back again. I don't want to take you any longer.
1: Yeah, We could sit here all day. We really, <laughs>
2: really. Um, it's not easy to find a healthcare professional with a specialized knowledge. Do you take telehealth patients?
0: Yes, I take telehealth patients. I have patients as far as New York, down to Florida, and up to about San Francisco. Um, We have had a couple international patients come in and have just educational discussions. Um, But yes, we take telehealth patients, especially now during. Um, quarantine, we've optimized our telehealth care. So um, by all means, if you have questions, concerns, if you want to do this better, if you want to learn how to minimize your medications and use this as an alternative base, hemp CBD is legal in all 50 states, which is such a bonus and advantage, especially for patients who want to start and don't know where
2: to start. And where can they find you? Oh, great. Thanks. Thanks for prompting. Um, You can
0: find me at the Relief Institute. Relief is spelled with a leaf, R-E-L-E-A-F. So that's www.thereliefinstitute.com. Or you can email me directly at Sherry, S-H-E-R-R-Y at M-D-Relief, R-E-L-E-A-F.com or
2: 310-475-2626. We look forward to helping you out. Awesome. And we'll have all those links in our show description as well.
1: Great. Dr. Sherry Afai, thank you so much for all of your work and for joining us on Cannabis Helps Dementia. And uh, we hope definitely to talk to you again, especially as uh, the results of uh, if you get your, get your uh, study going and as the re- new results come in from Germany, we'd love to talk to you about that. As, as new information comes in and we learn more about how cannabis can help dementia. I mean, uh, the pandemic uh, goes on, the, uh, um, the people are in the streets for justice, but uh, Alzheimer's and dementia continue as well. And people are in need in these times more than ever, especially not just people with dementia, just people that are anxious and, you know, and he's full of anxiety, you know, cannabis is an option. And, and uh, it's great to know that people can contact um, great doctors like you who know this and can, can guide them on their journey with plant medicine. Cool. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you
0: so much for having me on. Thank you for
2: doing this. This is great. Of course. Thank you.
1: Thanks for joining us for Cannabis Helps Dementia. Be sure to download and like us on Spotify, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting network.
2: And please share this podcast with anyone you know in relationship with dementia.
1: Do you want to tell your story of how cannabis helps dementia? Visit anchor.fm slash Cannabis Helps Dementia to leave us a voice message or drop us a note and connect with us on the socials.
2: Check out the Society of Cannabis Clinicians website to find real medical professionals familiar with cannabis medicine in your area.
1: Because you remember, we're not doctors.
2: Just family caregivers turned advocates.
1: And don't forget, download, like, and share what you learn. Cannabis Helps Dementia.
0: Why don't you get wise? Get up and get out, get rid of that frown that's been dragging you down And get up in the air, just pretend that you can
1: fly You'll never know if you can, till you try So get out, you're right, be able and strong Give vent to that intent you've had had up for so long Come on, come on up and see